Hello again, I'm Richard Figge, and this is For Reading Out Loud. So glad to have you with me. William Somerset Maugham was one of the most successful and admired writers of the 20th century. Novelist, short story writer, dramatist, and essayist, he is said to have been the world's highest paid author in the 1930s. You may be familiar with Of Human Bondage, The Moon and Sixpence, The Razor's Edge, and other books. Tonight, I'd like to take you back to the writer's workshop with a very early story that shows a young Somerset mom searching for his literary voice and about to hit his stride as the subtle, ironic storyteller we know. It's a long, short story, and I'll give it to you in two parts. It comes from a book published in 1899 titled Orientations, published when mom was 24. The stories differ widely in style and content, as if, in each one, Mom were experimenting, trying to find the kind of story that would prove most congenial to his talents. It is the final one, Daisy, that heralds the mature William Somerset Mom. Here is part one. It was Sunday morning, a damp, warm November morning, with the sky overhead gray and low. Miss Reed stopped a little to take breath before climbing the hill, at the top of which, in the middle of the churchyard, was Blackstable Church. Miss Reed panted, and the sultriness made her loosen her jacket. She stood at the junction of the two roads which led to the church, one from the harbour end of the town and the other from the station. Behind her lay the houses of Blackstable, the wind-beaten houses with slate roofs of the old fishing village, and the red brick villas of the seaside resort which Blackstable was fast becoming. In the harbour were the masts of ships, colliers that brought coal from the north, and beyond the grey sea, very motionless, mingling in the distance with the sky. The peal of the church bells ceased, and was replaced by a single bell, ringing a little hurriedly, querulously, which denoted that there were only ten minutes before the beginning of the service. Miss Reed walked on, She looked curiously at the people who passed her, wondering. "'Good morning, Mr. Golding,' she said to a fisherman who pounded by her, ungainly in his Sunday clothes. "'Good morning, Miss Reed,' he replied. "'Warm this morning.' She wondered whether he knew anything of the subject, which made her heart beat with excitement whenever she thought of it, and for thinking of it she hadn't slept a wink all night. "'Have you seen Mr. Griffith this morning?' she asked, watching his face. "'No, I saw Mrs. Griffith and George as I was walking up. "'Oh, they are coming to church, then,' Miss Reed cried with the utmost surprise. "'Mr. Golding looked at her stupidly, not understanding her agitation. "'But they had reached the church. "'Miss Reed stopped in the porch to wipe her boots "'and pass an arranging hand over her hair. "'Then, gathering herself together, she walked down the aisle to her pew. "'She arranged the hassock and knelt down, "'clasping her hands and closing her eyes.' She said the Lord's Prayer, and being a religious woman, she did not immediately rise, but remained a certain time in the same position of worship, to cultivate a proper frame of mind, her long sallow face upraised, her mouth firmly closed, and her eyelids quivering a little from the devotional force with which she kept her eyes shut. Her thin bust, very erect, was encased in a black jacket as in a coat of steel, but when Miss Reed considered that a due period had elapsed, she opened her eyes, and as she rose from her knees, bent over to a lady sitting just in front of her. "'Have you heard about the Griffiths, Mrs. Howlett?' "'No. What is it?' 
answered Mrs. Howlett, half turning around, intensely curious. Miss Reed waited a moment to heighten the effect of her statement. "'Daisy Griffith has eloped with an officer from the depot at Turkenbury.' Mrs. Howlett gave a little gasp. "'You don't say so. It's all they could expect,' whispered Miss Reed. "'They ought to have known something was the matter when she went into Turkenbury three or four times a week.' Blackstable is six miles from Turkenbury, which is a cathedral city, and has a cavalry depot. "'I've seen her hanging about the barracks with my own eyes,' said Mrs. Howlett, "'but I never suspected a thing.' "'Shocking, isn't it?' said Miss Reed, with suppressed delight. "'But how did you find out?' asked Mrs. Howlett. "'Shh!' whispered Miss Reed. The widow, in her excitement, had raised her voice a little, and Miss Reed could never suffer the least irreverence in church. She never came home last night, and George Browning saw them get into the London train at Turkenbury. "'Well, I never!' exclaimed Mrs. Howlett. "'Do you think the Griffiths will have the face to come to church?' "'Why shouldn't if I was them?' said Miss Reed. But at that moment the vestry door was opened, and the organ began to play the hymn. "'I'll see you afterwards.' Miss Reed whispered hurriedly, and rising from their seats, both ladies began to sing, O Jesu, thou art standing outside the fast-closed door, in lowly patience waiting to pass the threshold o'er. We bear the name of Christians. Miss Reed held the book rather close to her face, being short-sighted, but without even lifting her eyes she had become aware of the entrance of Mrs. Griffith and George. She glanced significantly at Mrs. Howlett. Mr. Griffith hadn't come, although he was churchwarden, and Mrs. Howlett gave an answering look which meant that it was then evidently quite true. But they both gathered themselves together for the last verse, taking breath. O Jesus, thou art pleading in accents meek and low. Amen. The congregation fell to its knees, and the curate, rolling his eyes to see who was in church, began gabbling the morning prayers. Dearly beloved brethren, at the Sunday dinner the vacant place of Daisy Griffith stared at them. Her father sat at the head of the table, looking down at his plate, in silence. Every now and then, without raising his head, he glanced up at the empty space filled with a madness of grief. He had gone into Turkenbury in the morning, inquiring at the houses of all Daisy's friends, imagining that she had spent the night with one of them. He could not believe that George Browning's story was true. He could so easily have been mistaken in the semi-darkness of the station, and even he had gone to the barracks, his cheeks still burned with a humiliation, asking if they knew a Daisy Griffith. He pushed his plate away with a groan. He wished passionately that it were Monday so he could work. The post would surely bring a letter, explaining. "'The vicar asked where you were,' said Mrs. Griffith. Robert, the father, looked at her with his pained eyes, but her eyes were hard and shining. Her lips almost disappeared in the tight closing of the mouth. She was willing to believe the worst. He looked at his son. He was frowning. He looked as coldly angry as the mother. He, too, was willing to believe everything, and they neither seemed very sorry.' Perhaps they were even glad. I was the only one who loved her, he muttered to himself, and pushing back his chair he got up and left the room. He almost tottered. He had aged twenty years in the night. "'Aren't you going to have any pudding?' asked his wife. 
he made no answer. He walked out into the courtyard quite aimlessly, but the force of habit took him to the workshop, where every Sunday afternoon he was used to going after dinner to see that everything was in order, and to-day also he opened the window, put away a tool which the men had left about, examined the Saturday's work. Mrs. Griffith and George, stiff and ill at ease in his clumsy Sunday clothes, went on with their dinner. "'Do you think the vicar knew?' he asked as soon as his father had closed the door. "'I don't think he'd have asked if he had. Mrs. Gray might, but he's too simple, unless she put him up to it.' "'I thought I should never get round with the plate,' said George. Mr. Griffith, being a carpenter, which is respectable and well-to-do, which is honourable, had been made churchwarden, and part of his duty was to take round the offertory plate. This duty George performed in his father's occasional absences, as when a coffin was very urgently needed. "'I wasn't going to let them get anything out of me,' said Mrs. Griffith defiantly. All through the service a number of eyes had been fixed on them, eager to catch some sign of emotion, full of horrible curiosity to know what the Griffiths felt and thought, but Mrs. Griffith had been inscrutable. Next day the Griffiths lay in wait for the postman. George sat by the parlour window, peeping through the muslin curtains. "'Fanny's just coming up the street,' he said at last. Until the post had come, old Griffith could not work. In the courtyard at the back was the sound of hammering. There was a rat-tat at the door, the sound of a letter falling on the mat, and fanning the postman passed on. George leaned back quickly so that he might not see him. Mr. Griffith fetched the letter, opened it with trembling hands. He gave a little gasp of relief. "'She's got a station in London.' "'Is that all she says?' said Mrs. Griffith. "'Give me the letter,' and she almost tore it from her husband's hand. She read it through and uttered a little ejaculation of contempt, almost of triumph. "'You don't mean to say you believe that?' she cried. "'Let's look, mother,' said George. He read the letter, and he too gave a snort of contempt. "'She says she's got a situation,' repeated Mrs. Griffith, with a sneer at her husband. "'And we're not to be angry or anxious.' and she's quite happy, and we can write to Charing Cross Post Office. I know what sort of a situation she's got. Mr. Griffith looked from his wife to his son. Don't you think it's true? he asked helplessly. At the first moment he had put the fullest faith in Daisy's letter. He had been so anxious to believe it. But the scorn of the others! There's Miss Reed coming down the street, said George. She's looking this way, and she's crossing over. I believe she's coming in. What does she want? asked Mrs. Griffith angrily. There was another knock at the door, and through the curtains they saw Miss Reed's eyes looking towards them, trying to pierce the muslin. Mrs. Griffith motioned the two men out of the room and hurriedly put antimacassars on the chairs. The knock was repeated, and Mrs. Griffith, catching hold of a duster, went to the door. Oh, Miss Reed, who'd have thought of seeing you? she cried with surprise. "'I hope I'm not disturbing,' answered Miss Reed, with an acid smile. "'Oh, dear, no,' said Mrs. Griffith. "'I was just doing the dusting in the parlour. "'Come in, won't you? "'The place is all upside down, but you won't mind that, will you?' Miss Reed sat on the edge of a chair. "'I thought I'd just pop in to ask about dear Daisy. "'I met Fanning as I was coming along, and he told me you'd had a letter. "'Oh, Daisy?' Mrs. Griffith had understood at once why Miss Reed came— but she was rather at a loss for an answer. "'Yes, we have had a letter from her. She's up in London.' "'Yes, I knew that,' said Miss Reed. 
George Browning saw them get into the London train, you know. Mrs. Griffith saw it was no good fencing, but an idea occurred to her. Yes, of course her father and I are very distressed about her eloping like that. I can quite understand that, said Miss Reed, but it was on account of his family. He didn't want anyone to know about it till he was married. Oh, said Miss Reed, raising her eyebrows very high. Yes, said Mrs. Griffith. That's what she said in her letter. They were married on Saturday at a registry office. But, Mrs. Griffith, I'm afraid she's been deceiving you. It's Captain Hogan, and he's a married man. She could have laughed outright at the look of dismay on Mrs. Griffith's face. The blow was sudden, and notwithstanding all her power of self-control, Mrs. Griffith could not help herself. But at once she recovered. An angry flush appeared on her cheekbones. "'You don't mean it!' she cried. "'I'm afraid it's quite true,' said Miss Reed humbly. "'In fact, I know it is. "'Then she's a lying, deceitful hussy, "'and she's made a fool of all of us. "'I give you my word of honour that she told us she was married. "'I'll fetch you the letter.' Mrs. Griffith rose from her chair, but Miss Reed put out a hand to stop her. "'Oh, don't trouble, Mrs. Griffith. "'Of course I believe you,' she said. And Mrs. Griffith immediately sat down again. But she burst into a storm of abuse of Daisy for her deceitfulness and wickedness. She vowed she would never forgive her. She assured Miss Reed again and again that she had known nothing about it. Finally she burst into a perfect torrent of tears. Miss Reed was mildly sympathetic, but now she was anxious to get away to impart her news to the rest of Blackstable. Mrs. Griffith sobbed her visitor out of the front door, but, when she had closed it, dried her tears. She went into the parlour and flung open the door that led to the back room. Griffith was sitting with his face hidden in his hands, and every now and then a sob shook his great frame. George was very pale, biting his nails. "'You heard what she said,' cried Mrs. Griffith. "'He's married!' She looked at her husband contemptuously. "'It's all very well for you to carry on like that now. It was you who did it. It was all your fault. If she'd been brought up as I wanted her to be, this wouldn't ever have happened.' Again there was a knock, and George, going out, ushered in Mrs. Gray, the vicar's wife. She rushed in when she heard the sound of voices. "'Oh, Mrs. Griffith, it's dreadful, simply dreadful. Miss Reed has just told me all about it. What is to be done? And what'll the dissenters make of it?' "'Oh, dear, it's simply dreadful.' "'You've just come in time, Mrs. Gray,' said Mrs. Griffith angrily. "'It's not my fault, I can tell you that. It's her father who's brought it about. He would have her to go into Turkenbury to be educated, and he would have her take singing lessons and dancing lessons. The church school was good enough for George. It's been Daisy this and Daisy that all through. Me and George have always been put by for Daisy. I didn't want her brought up above her station, I can assure you.' It's him who would have her brought up as a lady, and see what's come of it. And he let her spend any money she liked on her dress. It wasn't me that let her go into Turkenberry every day in the week if she wanted to. I knew she was up to no good. There you see what you brought her to. It's you who's disgraced us all. She hissed out the words with intense malignity, nearly screaming in the bitterness she felt towards the beautiful daughter of better education than herself, almost of different station. It was all but a triumph for her that this had happened. It brought her daughter down, it turned the tables, and now, from the superiority of her virtue, she looked down upon her with utter contempt. On the following Sunday the people of Blackstable enjoyed an emotion. As Miss Reed said, 
It was worth going to church this morning even for a dissenter. The vicar was preaching, and the congregation paid a very languid attention, but suddenly a curious little sound went through the church, one of those scarcely perceptible noises which no comparison can explain. It was a quick attraction of all eyes, an arousing of somnolent intelligences, a slight, quick drawing in of the breath. The listeners had heeded very indifferently Mr. Gray's admonitions to brotherly love and charity as matters which did not concern them other than abstractedly. But quite suddenly they had realized that he was bringing his discourse round to the subject of Daisy Griffith, and they pricked up both ears. They saw it coming directly along the highways of vanity and luxuriousness, and every one became intensely wide awake. "'And we have in all our minds,' he said at last, "'the terrible fall which has almost broken the hearts of sorrowing parents and brought bitter grief, bitter grief and shame to all of us.' He went on hinting at the scandal in the manner of the personal columns in newspapers, and drawing a number of obvious morals. The Griffith family were sitting in their pew well in view of the congregation, and losing even the shadow of decency, the people turned round and stared at them, ghoul-like. Robert Griffith sat in the corner with his head bent down, huddled up, his rough face speaking in all its lines the terrible humiliation. His hair was all disheveled. He was not more than fifty, and he looked an old man. But Mrs. Griffith sat next to him, very erect, not leaning against the back, with her head well up, her mouth firmly closed, and she looked straight in front of her, her little eyes sparkling, as if she had not an idea that a hundred people were staring at her. In the other corner was George, very white, looking up at the roof in simulation of indifference. Suddenly a sob came from the Griffith's pew, and people saw that the father had broken down. He seemed to forget where he was, and he cried as if indeed his heart were broken. The great tears ran down his cheeks in the sight of all, the painful tears of men. He had not even the courage to hide his face in his hands. Still Mrs. Griffith made no motion. She never gave a sign that she heard her husband's agony. But two little bright spots appeared angrily on her cheekbones, and perhaps she compressed her lips a little more tightly. Six months passed. One evening, when Mr. Griffith was standing at the door after work, smoking his pipe, the postman handed him a letter. He changed color, and his hand shook when he recognized the handwriting. He turned quickly into the house. "'A letter from Daisy,' he said. They had not replied to her first letter, and since then had heard nothing. "'Give it me,' said his wife. He drew it quickly towards him with an instinctive gesture of retention. "'It's addressed to me. Well, then, you'd better open it.' He looked up at his wife. He wanted to take the letter away and read it alone, but her eyes were upon him, compelling him there and then to open it. "'She wants to come back,' he said in a broken voice. Mrs. Griffith snatched the letter from him. "'That means he's left her,' she said. The letter was all incoherent, nearly incomprehensible, covered with blots, every other word scratched out. One could see that the girl was quite distraught, and Mrs. Griffith's keen eyes saw the traces of tears on the paper. It was a long, bitter cry of repentance. She begged them to take her back, 
repeating again and again the cry of penitence, piteously beseeching them to forgive her. "'I'll go and write to her,' said Mr. Griffith. "'Write what?' "'Why, that it's all right, and she isn't to worry, and we want her back, and that I'll go up and fetch her.' Mrs. Griffith placed herself between him and the door. "'What do you mean?' she cried. "'She's not coming back into my house.' Mr. Griffith started back. "'You don't want to leave her where she is. She says she'll kill herself.' "'Yes, I believe that,' she replied scornfully. And then, gathering up her anger, "'Do you mean to say you expect me to have her in the house after what she's done? I tell you I won't. She's never coming in this house again as long as I live. I am an honest woman, and she isn't. She's a—' Mrs. Griffith called her daughter the foulest name that can be applied to her sex. Mr. Griffith stood indecisively before his wife. "'But think what a state she's in, mother. She was crying when she wrote the letter. Let her cry. She'll have to cry a lot more before she's done. And it serves her right, and it serves you right. She'll have to go through a good deal more than that before God forgives her, I can tell you. Perhaps she's starving. Let her starve, for all I care. She's dead to us. I've told everyone in Blackstable that I haven't got a daughter now.' and if she came on her bended knees before me, I'd spit on her. George had come in and listened to the conversation. "'Think what people would say, father,' he said now. "'As it is, it's jolly awkward, I can tell you. No one would speak to us if she was back again. It's not as if people didn't know. Everyone in Blackstable knows what she's been up to.' "'And what about George?' put in Mrs. Griffith. "'Do you think the Pollets would stand it?' George was engaged to Edith Pollitt. "'She's quite capable of breaking it off if Daisy came back,' said George. "'She said as much.' "'Quite right, too,' cried his mother. "'And I'm not going to be like Mrs. J. with Lottie. "'Everyone knows about Lottie's goings-on, "'and you can see how people treat them, her and her mother. "'When Mrs. Gray passes them on the street, "'she always goes on the other side. "'No, I've always held my head high, and I'm always going to. "'I've never done anything to be ashamed of, as far as I know, "'and I'm not going to begin now.' Everyone knows it was no fault of mine what Daisy did, and all through I behaved so that no one should think the worse of me. Mr. Griffith sank helplessly into a chair. The old habit of submission asserted itself, and his weakness gave way as usual before his wife's strong will. He had not the courage to oppose her. "'What shall I answer, then?' he asked. "'Answer? Nothing!' "'I must write something. She'll be waiting for the letter.' and waiting and waiting. Let her wait. A few days later another letter came from Daisy, asking pitifully why they didn't write, begging them again to forgive her and take her back. The letter was addressed to Mr. Griffith. The girl knew that it was only from him she might expect mercy. But he was out when it arrived. Mrs. Griffith opened it and passed it on to her son. They looked at one another guiltily. The same thought had occurred to both, and each knew it was in the other's mind. "'I don't think we'd better let father see it,' Mrs. Griffith said, a little uncertainly. "'It'll do no good, and it'll only distress him. And it's no good making a fuss, because we can't have her back. She'll never enter this door as long as I'm in the world. I think I'll lock it up. I'd burn it if I was you, mother. It's safer.' Then every day Mrs. Griffith made a point of going to the door herself for the letters. Two more came from Daisy. "'I know it's not you. It's Mother and George. They've always hated me. 
"'Oh, don't be so cruel, father. You don't know what I've gone through. I've cried and cried till I thought I should die. For God's sake, write to me. They might let you write just once. I'm alone all day, day after day, and I think I shall go mad. You might take me back. I'm sure I've suffered enough, and you wouldn't know me now. I'm so changed.' Tell mother that if she'll only forgive me, I'll be quite different. I'll do the housework and anything she tells me. I'll be a servant to you, and she can send the girl away. If you knew how I repent, do forgive me and have me back. Oh, I know that no one would speak to me, but I don't care about that if I can only be with you. She doesn't think about us, said George, what we should do if she was back. No one would speak to us either." But the next letter said she couldn't bear the terrible silence. If her father didn't write, she'd come down to Blackstable. Mrs. Griffith was furious. I'd shut the door in her face. I wonder how she can dare to come. It's jolly awkward, said George. Supposing father found out we'd kept back the letters. It was for his own good, said Mrs. Griffith angrily. I'm not ashamed of what I've done, and I'll tell him so to his face if he says anything to me. Well, it is awkward— you know what father is. If he saw her... Mrs. Griffith paused a moment. You must go up and see her, George. Me? he cried in astonishment, a little in terror. You must go as if you came from your father, to say we won't have anything more to do with her, and she's not to write. Next day George Griffith, on getting out of the station at Victoria, jumped on a Fulham bus, taking his seat with the self-assertiveness of the countryman who intends to show the Londoners that he is as good as they are. He was in some trepidation and his best clothes. He didn't know what to say to Daisy, and his hands sweated uncomfortably. When he knocked at the door he wished she might be out, but that would only be postponing the ordeal. "'Does Mrs. Hogan live here?' "'Yes. Who shall I say?' "'Say a gentleman wants to see her.' He followed quickly on the landlady's heels, and passed through the door the woman opened while she was giving the message. Daisy sprang to her feet with a cry. George! She was very pale, her blue eyes dim and lifeless, with the lids heavy and red. She was in a dressing-gown, her beautiful hair disheveled, wound loosely into a knot at the back of her head. She had not half the beauty of her old self. George, to affirm the superiority of virtue over vice, kept his hat on. She looked at him with frightened eyes, then her lips quivered, and turning away her head she fell on a chair and burst into tears. George looked at her sternly. His indignation was greater than ever now that he saw her. His old jealousy made him exult at the change in her. "'She's got nothing much to boast about now,' he said to himself, noting how ill she looked. "'Oh, George!' she began, sobbing. But he interrupted her. "'I've come from father,' he said and we don't want to have anything more to do with you, and you're not to write. Oh! She looked at him now, with her eyes suddenly quite dry. They seemed to burn her in their sockets. Did he send you here to tell me that? Yes, and you're not to come down. She put her hand to her forehead, looking vacantly before her. But what am I to do? I haven't got any money. I've pawned everything. George looked at her silently but he was horribly curious. "'Why did he leave you?' he said. She made no answer. She looked before her, as if she were going out of her mind. "'Has he left you any money?' asked George. Then she started up, her cheeks flaming red. 
I wouldn't touch a halfpenny of his. I'd rather starve!' she screamed. George shrugged his shoulders. "'Well, you understand?' he said. "'Oh, how can you? It's all you and mother. You've always hated me. But I'll pay you out, by God, I'll pay you out. I know what you are, all of you, you and mother and all the Blackstable people. You're a set of damned hypocrites. Look here, Daisy, I'm not going to stand here and hear you talk like that of me and mother,' he replied with dignity. "'And as for the Blackstable people, you're not fit to—to associate with them.' and I can see where you learned your language. Daisy burst into hysterical laughter. George became more angry, virtuously indignant. Well, you can laugh as much as you like. I know your repentance is a lot of damned humbug. You've always been a conceited little beast, and you've been stuck up and cocky because you thought yourself nice-looking, and because you were educated in Turkenberry, and no one was good enough for you in Blackstable, and I'm jolly glad that all this has happened to you. It serves you jolly well right." and if you dare to show yourself in Blackstable, we'll send for the police. Daisy stepped up to him. I'm a damned bad lot, she said, but I swear I'm not half as bad as you are. You know what you're driving me to. I don't think I care what you do, he answered as he flung himself out the door. He slammed it behind him, and he also slammed the front door to show that he was a man of high principles. And even George Washington, when he said, I cannot tell a lie, I did it with my little hatchet, did not feel so righteous as George Griffith at that moment. Daisy went to the window to see him go, and then, throwing up her arms, she fell on her knees, weeping, weeping, and she cried, My God, have pity on me! I wouldn't go through it again for a hundred pounds, said George, when he recounted his experience to his mother, and she wasn't a bit humble, as you'd expect. Oh, that's Daisy all over. Whatever happens to her, she'll be as bold as brass. And she didn't choose her language, he said with mingled grief and horror. They heard nothing more of Daisy for over a year, when George went up to London for the choir treat. He did not come back till three o'clock in the morning, but he went at once to his mother's room. He woke her very carefully so as not to disturb his father. She started up, about to speak, but he prevented her with his hand. "'Come outside. I've got something to tell you.' Mrs. Griffith was about to tell him rather crossly to wait till the morrow, but he interrupted her. "'I've seen Daisy.' She quickly got out of bed, and they went together into the parlour. "'I couldn't keep it till the morning,' he said. "'What do you think she's doing now?' "'Well, after we came out of the Empire, I went down Piccadilly, and, well, I saw Daisy standing there.' It did give me a turn, I can tell you. I thought some of the chaps would see her. I simply went cold all over. But they were on ahead and hadn't noticed her. Thank God for that, said Mrs. Griffith piously. Well, what do you think I did? I went straight up to her and looked her full in the face. But do you think she moved a muscle? She simply looked at me as if she'd never set eyes on me before. Well, I was taken aback, I can tell you. I thought she'd faint. Not a bit of it. "'No, I know Daisy,' said Mrs. Griffith. "'You think she's this and that, because she looks at you with those blue eyes of hers, as if she couldn't say boo to a goose. But she's got the very devil in her. Well, I shall tell her father that, just so as to let him see what she has come to.' The existence of the Griffith household went on calmly. Husband and wife and son led their life in the dull little fishing town, 
The seasons passed insensibly into one another, one year slid gradually into the next, and the five years that went by seemed like one long, long day. Mrs. Griffith did not alter an atom. She performed her housework, went to church regularly, and behaved like a Christian woman in that state of life in which a merciful providence had been pleased to put her. George got married, and on Sunday afternoons could be seen wheeling an infant in a perambulator along the street. He was a good husband and an excellent father. He never drank too much, he worked well, he was careful of his earnings, and he also went to church regularly. His ambition was to become churchwarden after his father, and even in Mr. Griffith there was not so very much change. He was more bowed, his hair and beard were grayer, his face was set in an expression of passive misery, and he was extremely silent. But, as Mrs. Griffith said, "'Of course, he's getting old. One can't expect to remain young forever.' She was a woman who frequently said profound things. And I've known all along he wasn't the sort of man to make old bones. He never had the go in him that I have. I'd make two of him. The Griffiths were not so well-to-do as before. As Blackstable became a more important health resort, a regular undertaker opened a shop there, and his window, with two little model coffins and an arrangement of black Prince of Wales feathers surrounded by a white wreath, took the fancy of the natives, so that Mr. Griffith almost completely lost the most remunerative part of his business. Other carpenters sprang into existence and took away much of the trade. "'I've no patience with him,' said Mrs. Griffith, of her husband. "'He lets these newcomers come along and just take the bread out of his hands. Oh, if I was a man, I'd make things different, I can tell you. He doesn't seem to care.' At last, one day George came to his mother in a state of tremendous excitement. "'I say, mother, you know the pantomime they've got at Turkenberry this week?' "'Yes. Well, the principal boy's Daisy.' Mrs. Griffith sank into a chair, gasping. "'Harry Fern's been, and he recognized her at once. It's all over the town.' Mrs. Griffith, for the first time in her life, was completely at a loss for words. "'Tomorrow's the last night,' added her son, after a little while, "'and all the Blackstable people are going.' "'To think that this should happen to me,' said Mrs. Griffith distractedly. "'What have I done to deserve it? Why couldn't it happen to Mrs. Garman or Mrs. Jay? If the Lord had seen fit to bring it upon them, well, I shouldn't have wondered.' "'Edith wants us to go,' said George. Edith was his wife. "'You don't mean to say you're going with all the Blackstable people there?' "'Well, Edith says we ought to go just to show them we don't care.' "'Well,' "'I shall come, too,' cried Mrs. Griffith. "'You've been listening to Daisy by William Somerset Maugham "'from his 1899 collection, Orientations. "'Next week, the conclusion. "'I hope you'll be able to join me then. "'In the meantime, be well, be happy. "'Watch out for each other. "'All the best.'